Today, we shall continue with our wisdom series of Dhamma talks. And you've heard yesterday's CD-recorded talk. And today, we shall explore yet another aspect of wisdom, namely in the form of equanimity about formations. And then tomorrow, we shall look again at the at Satipatthana, and in particular, talk about the Four Noble Truths. So, over the last three to four weeks, we have, at times, dealt with aspects of Satipatthana, at times with aspects of wisdom. And we shall continue on or with this until near the end of, uh, of the retreat. And the reason you know, for, uh, well, today you know, giving a talk on you know, wisdom is uh, that within you know, the last uh, you know, three to four weeks, you know, a number of, actually a surprising, you know, surprisingly high number of uh, the meditators who are participating in this retreat have uh, had a tremendous certain development in their meditation practice. And uh, they themselves uh, become, uh, well, a living proof uh, that just like rivers incline to an ocean, so too you know, the practice of uh, Satipatthana uh, or the, yes, the practice of satipatthana inclines towards what? Nibbana, indeed. And so, uh, so um, all it takes in the end is just to be mindful you know, from moment to moment, to put in a fair amount of uh, balanced uh, effort and to be you know, diligent in one's practice, and then everything else kind of is happening you know, by itself. Now, the Pali term for the insight knowledge or aspect of wisdom that we're going to look at today is certainly Sankara Upeka Jnana. And when we combine the first and second word, then it becomes sankha upeka jnana. Now, this Pali compound term consists of three parts, namely sankhara, upeka, and jnana. And out of these three words, Pali words, you definitely know already the term jnana, which stands for wisdom or insight knowledge, yes. And upika stands for equanimity and sankhara. It still needs to be explained. So by sankhara here in this context is meant anything formed. The Pani term for this is sankata. And anything formed and conditioned, and it includes all things whatsoever uh, in the world, all phenomena of uh, existence. And uh, this meaning of sankara applies in particular to 
uh, formations uh, that are uh, subject to impermanence, namely anicca, subject to unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, and subject to uh, the absence of a self, anatta. And hence, formations conducive to or subject to impermanence, uh, unsatisfactoriness and non-self are said or are known as sankaras. Those are your conditioned formations. And there uh, is a term around that is more comprehensive even than the term uh, sankara, and this term is known as dhamma. Now, what's the difference in meaning between sankara and dhamma? Ah, so then all kinds of things, not just conditions. So if you say not just condition, then what is what's, uh, what remains? What what is not included? Ah, Nibbana, there you go, it's quite correct. And so, the term Dhamma covers both the conditioned phenomena as well as the one unconditioned phenomenon in the form of Nibbana. The, The unconditioned or the unformed. And the Pali term for this is Asankata Dhatu. And so, therefore, in the, in the Dhammapada, we, ha- we have three you know, verses connected with Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. And um, the first one starts with the line, Sabbe Sankara Anicjati. All formations are impermanent. And here, by formations, are included only the conditioned formations and not Nibbana. Then the next verse starts with the line, Savisankara Dukkhati, all formations are unsatisfactory, are Dukkha. Again, in this, Nibbana is not included. And then comes a slight change, the change of word, and the the first line of the third verse is sabbe dhamma anatati. So all 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 dhammas are are lack a self. So this then includes nibbana. And Nibbana is said, interestingly enough, and we shall go into this in one of the forthcoming Dhamma talks, and Nibbana is not um, impermanent, but rather a permanent and eternal state. And Nibbana is also said not to be dukkha or unsatisfactory, but rather it is certainly said to be sukha. And uh, Nibbana is indeed lacking a self. Hence, when we then combine the three Pali words, sankhara, upeka, jnana, then the derived meaning 
of this is the knowledge or inside knowledge of equanimity about formations. Now, at least two you know, definitions can be you know, found in the texts uh, you know, for this particular aspect of uh, wisdom. Now, when we turn to the Visuddhimagga, or path of purification, its uh, fourth uh, you know, chapter, paragraph 161, we find it defined in the following way, namely, equanimity about formations is a name for equanimity consisting in, and so please notice, neutrality about understanding, reobservation, and composure regarding the hindrances and certain other formations. And then it is said that this equanimity in the context of Satipatthana practice or Vipassana practice is of ten kinds. So what we have in this definition is that the knowledge of equanimity covers an area ranging from the knowledge of reobservation and including the area where there is composure towards certain formations. Now, a slightly, well, in some, maybe before we go to the you know, second definition, you know, just uh, briefly you know, to mention what are you know, those ten kinds of uh, equanimity you know, that occur in connection with uh, you know, vipassana or insight meditation. And so, you know, the answer you know, given in you know, the Patisambida uh, Maga itself is uh, as follows, namely, the ten kinds of equanimity are those connected with the four noble paths, so the supramundane path, and um, you know, furthermore connected, you know, the four connected with the four f- noble fruitions, and then the void liberation, sunyata, vimoka, and the signless liberation, animita, vimoka. So those are two you know, gateways you know, to uh, liberation. Now, slightly different from the first certainly, definition is a definition which can be found in the path of discrimination, the Patisamida Magra, where it says, insight knowledge of desire for deliverance, of reobservation, and of composure, those three things together, is knowledge of equanimity about formations. So in this, we have one additional criterion, namely desire for deliverance. Now, what what happens in one's meditation practice? 
uh, when one has observed, or yeah, when one has observed you know, mental and certain sort of physical formations over and over and over again, and when one has seen them as you know, being subject to impermanence, subject to unsatisfactoriness, and subject to you know, an absence of a self, then what happens? Who knows? Huh? Oh, you could care less about them. Um, so, and so, more than this, so you don't care anymore about them. And then what next? You see them as empty. You get detached. You get disgusted with them. What else? You have at that point not not quite yet. Ah, so you want to reach nibbana, and this is possible only if you. Yes, if you let go, and you know, when you, you know, well desired you know, for Nibbana, you incline the mind turn towards Nibbana, although at that point you don't quite you know, yet know how to do this. So, um, as a number of you, you know, will understand by now from your own meditation practice, there is a certain Vipassana logic in all of this. As we keep observing the same old you know, material and mental formations over and over again, we see them in you know, different lights and some, or under different aspects, and gradually you know, we realize these formations, after all, aren't all that great. And, <laughs> and we couldn't care less about them. No. And so, then, in the Patisambhida Magga, we find in, in the first chapter on wisdom, under the paragraph of uh, paragraph 327, we find uh, the purpose mentioned for uh, the um, well, arising of this particular uh, insight knowledge. And there it says you know, that, you know, as the first purpose, knowledge of uh, you know, reobservation, of uh, you know, the arising of formations, and uh, you know, then you know, the, you know, well, you know, the decay of formations, the death or the dissolution of formations, and so on, and of composure, is for the purpose of attaining you know, the stream entry path. So the path of uh, stream entry. So when we, um, when there is this knowledge of reobservation and uh, of composure towards formations, you know, then this is not happening you know, in a purposeless manner, you know, but rather in a very you know, directed uh, or purposeful manner. And so then it goes on you know, to say in that same passage from the Patisamida Magga that the second certain purpose of uh, the exercise is certain to uh, attain the fruit, you know, the 
uh, fruition of certain stream entry, and then it goes on uh, like this, namely you know, to gain you know, the path of once returning, the fruition of once returning, then the path of non-returning, the fruition of non-returning, the path of... Uh, um, of holiness and then the fruition of holiness and certainly then the void liberation and the signless liberation. So in the end, this knowledge of equanimity about formations fulfills a really important aspect. And maybe to say this much from from a practical point of view, if we were to uh, assume the following situation, namely um, Satipatthana practice that proceeds to, you know, you know, through the different insight knowledges but without this knowledge of equanimity. And then we were to attempt uh, you know, you know, to gain stream entry. This, if, if it were really to happen like this, it could even be dangerous to the meditator. And the reason for this is the mind just needs a tremendous amount of uh, internal or inner strength, of uh, inner, well, balance to cope with what is going to happen next. And if if those conditions are not present, then... Um, um, then a meditator might, uh, well, a series of things might happen to the mind. And now the the Pasna psychological explanation for the um, development that leads up to this insight knowledge is certain as certain follows, namely that as long as the the pasna insight knowledges, the preceding insight knowledges, have not yet reached maturity, a meditator still will have to uh, exert effort in order to overcome hindrances such as the hindrance of sense desire, of ill will, of sloth and torpor, of restlessness and remorse, and of skeptical doubt. And it is only when the when one's preceding insight knowledges have gained maturity and one has covered all of those, that a meditator can um, deal with those or face uh, those hindrances with composure. So no longer having to make uh, a big, big uh, effort to uh, overcome them and no longer uh, having to be concerned about certain uh, those certain uh, hindrances now a second you know, explanation the, for you know, the development 
is certain of this certain particular insight knowledge is as certain follows. Namely, as one is certain gradually progressing through the different certain insight knowledges, one at times will have an experience of maybe some sudden fright or then there may be an experience of feeling rather uh, well rather sad and so, um, low spirit of a low spirit and disheartened and some, then there may be a point in the practice when one feels certain disenchanted with formations and some, uh, then you know, there may be a point certain, when you know, one you know, might you know, wish to you know, be, you know, get away you know, from it all. And as long as something you know, the mind has not seen Nibbana as peaceful, it will have to you know, face the same formations over and over again. So there may and there certainly will be a desire you know, to break free, yet as long as the necessary maturity of uh, one's uh, wisdom or insight knowledge is not there, one will still have to put up uh, with these uh, formations over and over again. So at times uh, one uh, one will have to uh, face uh, some sudden fright and at other times uh, one feels uh, um, somewhat distressed and disenchanted um, and so on and so forth. And so even though one does not like uh, the arising and the observation of these formations, yet um, one cannot help uh, having uh, to observe them and uh, having to uh, work uh, with them. And only when the only when the mind becomes somewhat uh, balanced about it all, about certain uh, these you know, different faces, and greatly and partly you know, rather you know, rather of uh, you know, well you know, rather opus op, op, well how to put this rather contradictory you know, faces in you know, one's uh, meditation pra- or extreme you know, faces in one's uh, meditation practice, one gradually learns to you know, let go and to, and more important you know, to accept formations as they are and then only when the necessary conditions are present will equanimity arise and certainly then will the transition to Nibbana take place. Now, this particular insight knowledge of equanimity 
of about formations receives a, a broad certain treatment in the or in a comprehensive treatment in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, and there are plenty of you know, very nice certain illustrations uh, mentioned there. The connection to the preceding phase of the of one's meditation practice is as follows. So a meditator has seen formations as uh, or has re-observed, revisited you know, formations and you know, then also sees those same formations as lacking a self, you know, namely as sort of void. And as a result of this, one takes formations no longer to be mine or or my or I. And the homely illustration for given for this particular situation is certainly that, and I'm changing changing the illustration a little bit, namely. Um, of a woman, a married woman, who has, who is very much in love with her husband, and she cannot stand being away and separated from her husband, not even for a minute, and so must be uh, strongly attached. But then, one day, it so happens that she finds out that uh, the husband has, uh, uh, or that or just she finds out, she sees her husband standing with another woman, and talking to her, laughing with her, having a fun time, and doing whatever he likes to do. Having found out his faults, she is, what do you think? Disenchanted. Disenchanted, indeed. Incredibly disenchanted. And... (laughs) And then, having wanting to get free from this unreliable, disloyal husband, she then divorces him. And then later on, when seeing her husband, her ex-husband again, doing whatever he likes to do, she is no longer, or she is equanimous about the whole thing. Equanimous, balanced, let him do whatever he likes. And she no longer sees him as my husband. So that attachment there and the possessiveness that early on was there is no longer there. Likewise, for the meditators who previously saw 
near there or related to their near formation material and mental formations so much as my rising and falling my pain my anger my this my that having seen the flaws having seen the faults of these very formations one wants to get free from them and one no longer cares what they are doing and so as a result of this a meditator becomes well neutral and equanimous towards those very formations now it is then said in the visuddhimagga events at that point in one's meditation practice something interesting happens namely that um, literally you know the word is used to meditate is a heart retreats retracts and recoils and it retreats retracts and recoils you know, from this entire range of uh, the physical and mental uh, formations and it no longer goes out to those formations and this particular you know, aspect here theoretically so far it's only a theoretical aspect v- you know, very much then corresponds with what is actually happening in one's meditation practice and meditators find that when previously they you know they experienced the so-called panoramic awareness now what is the awareness doing uh, yes it is closing in and it or it's not just closing in it's withdrawing from a multiplicity of formations and it will settle on just a few so practically what happens is that one's observation will limit itself to maybe two three major objects the mind will stay on one object for maybe a couple of minutes then it might go on and observe some other predominant object and then and to be with them for a while and then it will move on to yet another object and stay there for a while and then back to the first object and that's that's about it and um a further aspect in you know, the connection of you know, this uh, insight knowledge is that if it is still somewhat weak in nature then a meditator may have a brief taste of equanimity towards formations but since the momentum the equanimity is not strong enough the practice will collapse you know to some you know, extent and you've heard yesterday about the so-called yo-yo effect and you know, one's insight knowledge may drop off and the visuddhimagga says uh, that you know, well typically it might sort of drop off or you know, then get established in 
uh, repulsiveness. So seeing formations as repulsive or, you know, to put it differently, you know, to be disenchanted with formations. Now, having that's the theoretical you know, point of view. Practically speaking, at times it may happen if uh, one you know, failed to be really continuously mindful and suddenly got carried away by some unwholesome mental state, and so, uh, and this has been going on for quite some time, that actually you know, the you know, nose dive or the drop in one's practice you know, could go even further down than just the repulsiveness. And so there's a certain flexibility here. It doesn't have to always drop to this level of repulsiveness. It may be less than this, but it may also be more than this. Now, this particular you know, situation in you know, one's uh, meditation practice, the, you know, the aspect that uh, the mind retracts, re- uh, retracts, recoils, and uh, you know, then retreats, you know, this is certainly you know, then compared or illustrated in the yet a different way, namely with... Um, a lotus leaf which is slightly slanted and onto which some water drops. And a a drop of water that has fallen onto a lotus leaf, what do you think? A lotus leaf which is slightly slanted, will it stay there? Uh, It will roll off or slide off, indeed. And now, this certain particular situation of uh, going either the practice dropping back off or partly you know, being you know, time, yeah, you know, partly you know, being in equanimity might go on for quite some time. And actually, as a matter of fact, from a you know, practice point of view, gradually the momentum of, of one's equanimity gets stronger and stronger. And with this, the likelihood of one's practice to you know, drop off you know, gets certain or is certainly somewhat less. And so, however, it will you know, keep going like this until, or the mind will remain in the world of conditioned you know, formations until um, the mind discovers nibbana to be truly peaceful. So, the taste of nibbana. You know, then, or Nibbana will be tasted as certain and peaceful. Now, this is going to be a very new and unique experience. And so, 
it is an experience that is different from anything that one has uh, you know, so far uh, experienced. It's very different from all you know, conditioned uh, experiences. Once the mind has discovered you know, this certain peaceful nature of Nibbana, then what do you think? What will it do? Will it turn away from it or turn towards it? Huh? It will turn towards it. Yes, indeed. It will turn towards Nibbana, but it will turn away from the conditioned formations. And so, as long as the situation where the mind is not yet finding the gateway to Nibbana is uh, compared to or is given in the Visuddhimagga with yet another very nice uh, illustration, namely of uh, some merchants and or merchants and sailors who um, in the old days, so this must have been centuries back uh, before the invention of the compass and uh, the modern radar, when uh, you know, the when merchants uh, went uh, or sailors went on to um, a transatlantic uh, uh, journey on a ship, and uh, having you know, well incomplete maps and so on and so forth, and they would take with them a crow, at least one, if not maybe several. And whenever the ship got blown off course through a strong gale, and suddenly the crew was lost, not knowing exactly in which direction to go, no, no longer knowing you know, where, you know, in, in which direction you know, lies you know, their destination, and so uh, then they would release one of those land-finding crows. And the land-finding crow would rise up into the sky and fly higher and higher and higher and would look around into uh, all or, or survey all quarters. So 360 uh, degrees. And not seeing land, uh, uh, such a land-finding crow would do what? Back to the ship. There you go. It would fly right back to the ship and land on top of uh, the mast. And so, you know, then the ship uh, would continue you know, its journey, you know, still not quite knowing which way to go, and then after a while, the sailors would release such a land-finding crow again for or for a second time, and maybe you know, and the second time, you know, the crow would rise up into the sky, and then survey all quarters, and if it certainly would see land somewhere in a distance then it would go in that direction and no longer return to the ship. 
Now, the sailors would carefully you know, follow the movements uh, of uh, you know, that land-finding crow and would then adjust the course of uh, the ship and go basically uh, or direct the ship in the same direction that the crow had, uh, had taken. So this is what happens in the meditation practice. As, and for some meditator, this may be even a little bit challenging. So, um, establishing no one's knowledge about equanimity, about formations. However, there's still one shortcoming here or there. Certain, certain conditions are still not quite right. And one's practice keeps going around and around and around and around and around and nothing major happens. Nothing new, new, new happens. And that's you know, the illustration or the, the, this illustration of the land-finding crow um, you know, very much you know, corresponds you know, to you know, the, that situation from the practice. However, once Nibbana has been you know, seen as peaceful or experienced as peaceful, then the mind will always want to go back into that same direction. It will not always manage to do so, that's another thing, but the inclination will definitely be there. Now, the Visuddhimagga speaks of um, three conditions that need to be present for a meditator to experience the peaceful nature of Nibbana. And those criteria are the following. Namely, a meditator has had to uh, or simply has has to you know, f- see formations again and again in the mode of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. And in different certain uh, in different ways. And then the next criterion given by the Visuddhimagga is that of abandoning terror and delight. And so, previously, it wasn't like this. Previously, you know, there were moments of fright, and you know, at other times, you know, there was delight, which means that the mind at that point was lacking equanimity, balance. And it would get carried away by these experiences. So coming across some delightful experience or desirable experience, no no delight would be there. Coming across some slightly frightening experience, maybe a shock was there. So the mind back then was highly reactive. Um, so, but now the situation has changed. Once certain uh, meditation has developed uh, further, 
and one has gone beyond yeah, this fright and certain uh, delight. And the next uh, criterion mentioned is certain uh, and connected um, with the second one after becoming neutral and equanimous in the investigation of formations. A meditator then continues with his observation or contemplation. Now, see, if, if as a meditator you've observed the same old formations, not just a hundred times, not just a thousand times, but maybe 10,000 times or even more than this. Gradually, you've seen it all and, and, <laughs> and nothing can shake your mind anymore. And you become balanced about what is happening in the practice. To give you a worldly example, and so it has actually something to do here with the center, the you know, forest refuge. Imagine, or not just imagine, just to, you know, think of uh, you know, Marie and Sarah in the office. When they first started their job here and were all new you know, to meditators and so to being at a meditation center, you can imagine you know, with all these many requests, this meditator wants this, another meditator wants another thing, and so, you know, and then one meditator comes and says, please tell you know, so and so, my fellow meditator so-and-so to behave differently. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and so, so you can imagine, you know, during the first uh, you know, days and weeks of uh, Marie and Sarah at the, uh, you know, being in the office of the Forest Refuge, you know, they were probably not very balanced about uh, their things. But then, as years go by, and one generation of uh, one generation of meditators after another passes through retreat by retreat, they get pretty cool about the whole thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, they you know, assume a much more equanimous and neutral attitude towards the meditators. And even if the most uh, uh, outrageous uh, uh, demand comes, they'll say, oh, never mind, yeah, <laughs> cool it, uh, cool it, and we'll uh, try to fix it for you. And so, and this actually happens, this particular development of equanimity you know, towards formations happens in life over and over again. It's not just in meditation, it happens also in, uh, in our worldly, uh, worldly life. Um, and uh, a good example, another example, well, you know, work is one, and uh, studies would be another example. When we first start studying at university, we don't, we don't quite know how much effort we need to put in you know, to you know, well, pass you know, the exams. But then you know, maybe by the time we reach the third or fourth semester, we're already seasoned meditators. We know exactly how much, how much and how little effort we need to put into our studies. And then we kind of easily, comfortably, with composure, sail through university. <laughs> yes, it's true or not? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
So, anyways, once these certain three conditions um, have been met, namely to say it again, that one has certainly seen formations as uh, in the light of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, and uh, has then abandoned certain fright and delight, and furthermore has become neutral and equanimous about certain formations, then um, it's quite possible that one will gain liberation through one of those certain doors towards certain liberation, or doors of liberation. Now, one particular further aspect of this insight knowledge or aspect of wisdom is that overall the mind is quite unruffled. And there's an unruffled calm, and so this points towards tranquility, stillness of mind, and certain serenity of mind. And so this also implies that there are very little thoughts. And so on top of this, the texts speak of effort as being an effortless effort. So previously, during the preceding insight knowledges, a meditator had to put in a lot of effort, a lot of balanced effort, and so not doing so would certainly lead to a stagnation in the practice. But now, at this point in the practice, things are turning around, and to the pleasant surprise of a meditator, the effort comes, or the energy comes naturally, and so all one needs to do is just sit there to be mindful of whatever is happening, and then one is kind of cruising along. And the illustration that the Venerable Sadhu Pandita likes to give for this particular aspect or condition of one's meditation practice is that of driving and driving on an interstate in an, well, some more advanced car which has automatic pilot and, um, and then all you need to do is, and there's very little tra- traffic on the interstate, and all you need to do is just hold on to the steering wheel. You don't even need to press the gas pedal and so you know, the car will just you know, cruise along. Now, from this illustration, we can derive one piece of information. Namely, if we try to speed up things, thinking like, well, today is already Tuesday, the retreat ends Saturday morning, I have only very few days left, let me push things a little bit by putting in very strong effort of thinking that, well, effort was praised by the Buddha, so this will get me there, then it's just the right, the wrong ticket. 
you know, and this will not lead you, you know, or it will not get you closer to Nibbana, but rather you know, further away from Nibbana. And so if one were to you know, try to speed up things by you know, forcing things, by making, by putting in extreme, you know, well, excessive type of effort, this certainly would actually you know, unsettle one's practice and so, you know, then one might even end up you know, with a drop in you know, one's certain meditation practice. So at this point, in this kind of a situation, it is best not to overdo it, neither to, you know, to find just the right amount of balance to the effort, effortless effort, and so, um, not to do less than this or put in less effort than this nor more than this. Now there is a certain, sometimes a certain danger that as things are going quite smoothly, one that might think, okay, uh, now you know all I need to do is just sit there. I might as well you know, relax and uh, start thinking about something else. I might, I might as well you know, start you know, since the end of the retreat is coming up, and I've got so much, uh, you know, so many things, so many projects to take care of after the retreat. I might as well use my time wisely you know, by planning ahead, and you know, that would be detrimental to one's practice. Now, yet a further and really fascinating uh, aspect of uh, you know, this certain phase of uh, one's certain wisdom is that one's mind tends to be rather, uh, rather clear and um, also rather pure to an extent that some uh, meditators might even wrongly think you know, that uh, they've become Aran, an, an Arahant. Since uh, it is said uh, the mind, uh, in the mind of an Arahant, no more defilements arise, the mind is entirely pure. Now, can this be? No. <laughs> it cannot be. Well, the purity of the mind uh, in a person who, for the first time, is gaining this uh, knowledge of equanimity about formations, yes, indeed, this is possible. But uh, it is a, a purity that is somewhat similar you know, to you know, the purity present in the mind of an arahant, but it's not the same. And uh, <coughs> the purity that uh, is ascribed to the mind of an arahant you know, comes about you know, through a total eradication of you know, you know, mental defilements from, you know, from the stream of consciousness, you know, whereas the you know, purity of uh, the mind that uh, the meditators experience uh, you know, at this point comes uh, you know, by you know, through a process uh, which is known as substitution by opposite or by opposites. Namely, certain unwholesome mental states will be substituted by wholesome mental states. It doesn't mean that the unwholesome mental states are total or have been totally uprooted from the stream of consciousness. (coughs) 
<coughs> However, at least you know the experience is quite uh, you know, the experience of this purity and clarity is quite amazing, and uh, uh, it will then you know, propel a meditator you know, to go on with his or her uh, meditation practice. Now, <clears throat> a further aspect that a further aspect of you know, um, knowledge of uh, equanimity about formations and that was mentioned early on and is that of uh, composure and what this means is without any major concern without uh, getting all uptight or uh, distressed uh, a meditator just observes whatever it uh, comes along and actually what happens what may happen as part of this composure is that you know, there is a continuity of uh, knowledge so one knowledge seeing the true nature of objects occurs moment by moment by moment by moment without much interference or a slightly different aspect here would be that a series of insight knowledges occur in an unbroken way so um, without getting stuck somewhere, but uh, one insight knowledge after you know, the other arises until you know, then uh, equanimity is uh, there. Now, the Venerable Saito Pandita likes to you know, point out in the context of uh, you know, this particular phase in one's certain meditation practice, that the mind assumes a certain or certain qualities, and you know, one of them is that the mind uh, gains uh, this um, repelling power, or you know, sometimes Sadhu Pandita says resistance power. And what this means is despite of the fact uh, you know, that uh, we you know, may be experiencing a great variety of uh, pleasant or unpleasant uh, phenomena, yet nothing sticks to the mind, nothing harms or hurts uh, the mind, but rather you know, the mind has this fabulous quality of repelling whatever you know, comes along. So nothing sticks. And so whatever um, difficult situation one might uh, encounter, such as being you know, verbally abused or even physically abused and so on, yet you know, the mind has this resistance power and it simply is not bothered by what is happening. It simply is, it is equanimous about the whole affair and can easily put up with this. Now, this in particular, this repelling 
the power of the mind uh, has been uh, or can be compared you know, to um, a well-known you know, quality of, uh, of a well-known you know, president of this very country. And you th do you know who this president was and what was the quality he possessed? Huh? Ronnie. Oh, why are you saying Ronnie? Ronald Reagan. So now then, for the others, Ronald Reagan had a particular quality. Teflon. Ronald Reagan, if I'm not mistaken, was referred to frequently as the Teflon Man. And the quality of Teflon is that nothing sticks to it. And so Ronald Reagan had, you know, since he was, uh, since, uh, uh, well, he'd spent much, uh, uh, much time in, in show business uh, or entertain, in the entertainment industry, he was very well aware of uh, you know, the importance of PR. And so he had a policy, apparently, of um, well limiting his statements to only good news, whereas the bad news had to be broadcast by the government spokesperson. So the government spokesperson then ended up with all the negative feedback, whereas Ronnie Reagan, the Teflon man, was just never touched by anything. <laughs> and so, as a medit, maybe Ronald Reagan did had done an advance, or maybe he'd done a lot of meditation practice to. <laughs> <laughs> to be called the Teflon Man. Who knows? <laughs> you don't think so? No. <laughs> so Jimmy Carter would be more likely uh, to do meditation practice. <laughs> and some... Now, other qualities that the mind or one's meditation practice possesses during equanimity about certain formations are the following six. Namely, there is absence of fear and certain pleasure. So basically, the mind simply just transcends this pair of opposites. And then, furthermore, uh, um, again another new, new process of transcendence, as the second quality, pain and pleasure are you know, seen with equanimity. So previously, a meditator you know, would certainly you know, react certainly you know, strongly in the face of pain or in the face of pleasure. In one case, uh, maybe with aversion. In the first case, with aversion. And in the second case, uh, with uh, liking. But now, now, this is not happening anymore. And so the third now, characteristic of uh, now, this knowledge of um, uh, equanimity about formations is that... Um, 
as it is taking place automatically, you know, there is no particular, no outstanding effort involved. involved. And so this very much is the case, and so the meditators are very happy about this particular aspect. After so many days and weeks of having to exert a tremendous amount of effort from or moment by moment, now finally they kind of they can relax a little bit and sit back a little bit and kind of enjoy the practice to some extent. Now, Yet another very unique quality of equanimity is that in terms of time or duration of a sitting, it lasts longer and longer and longer. So if previously one could barely sit for one hour, now one can easily sit for two or three hours and certain meditators even up to six, seven, eight, nine uh, or uh, more hours. Now, more than uh, more than three uh, is certainly uh, maybe in the context of this retreat uh, not that likely. Now, yet a further aspect uh, um, is uh, that of refinement, namely, as one certain uh, meditation uh, progresses or develops everything becomes more refined. And so the objects of observation, in particular the physical ones, become more refined, as well as the mental objects, as well as the observing mind. And because of this increasing refinement of formations, things are becoming extremely subtle and delicate and meditate or the meditators in general are you know, being you know, encouraged from the very outset of, uh, of a retreat to pay to learn to you know, pay attention to details to tiny minute little details because later on things become so refined if as a meditator, one doesn't learn or doesn't um, um, well acquire this skill of uh, observing carefully and paying attention to details right from the very beginning. How then is one going to learn this or acquire this skill you know, you know, towards the end of the practice when things are getting really refined? So you know, this... Uh, is not certainly so likely. So therefore, um, keep refining you know, your observation more and more, try to see more and more details as you go on in your meditation practice. And then, as uh, you know, we've uh, heard already you know, earlier on, as described in the Visuddhimagga, the you know, the mind has the meditation becomes somewhat uh, fixed and steady, and you know, the mind you know, recoils, retreats, retracts. And the fascinating you know, point uh, in the meditation you know, during this phase is, even if 
as a test. You uh, intentionally send your mind towards some unwholesome you know, mental, you know, or, you know, towards some unwholesome thought. So intentionally, you start thinking about something unwholesome. Maybe you know, some some you know, uh, romantic affair you know, five years ago, or whatever else it might be, and. Uh, the, f the amazing thing is the mind will briefly go there and what will it do? Withdraw. It will withdraw, it will come right back. And it bounces back, it doesn't want to stay you know, with those you know, kind of uh, you know, thoughts, unwholesome thoughts. So basically, uh, at this point in the practice, the mind behaves like, a, like an Australian boomerang. You throw it and it comes right back to you. And this shows the, well, the uh, tremendous amount of uh, purity that is uh, present, uh, purity and strength you know, that is present you know, during you know, this certain phase in one's meditation. Now, yesterday, the, the yo-yo effect was mentioned to you, um, you know, during that certain city recorded certain talk, and uh, was there mention of the gyroscope? There was. The top, yes, indeed. And so, so um, to pick up that example, the knowledge of equanimity bond formations is like a top which you have given uh, a, a, well, a nice spin, a nice uh, strong kinetic momentum, and then uh, it spins around and spins around, and the top is very steady. And you can even you know, take the surface underneath and certainly change it in terms of level, and the top on top will not certainly fall over. But as soon as certainly the top loses some of its kinetic energy you know, then or momentum, then it will start wobbling, and certainly sooner or later it will tip over. No? So, here, during this particular phase in our meditation practice, the mind is pretty, pretty stable. And um, then, what's, what next? Now, it's not uncommon among the meditators to gain this knowledge of equanimity to some extent, and then, you know, owing to a lack of uh, continuity of mindfulness or some other factor, the practice drops off again. And so, so the so-called yo-yo effect uh, then takes place not just once, but this may happen many times. And so this, as it you know, then goes on, or might go on for a longer period of time, you know, it may be somewhat frustrating. And therefore, it's certainly useful you know, to run through a checklist 
of possible or potential dangers, difficulties. And we'll do this quickly since we're, as usual, running out of time. Now, what makes a big difference is to have frequently seen you know, formations in the light of Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. There's some meditators who progress or through the insight knowledges who reach equanimity, but haven't really you know, gotten the point with regard to Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. Still, they're not quite clear. And you know, so if this is you know, the case, you know, then you know, it would be high time you know, to you know, give more uh, emphasis you know, to observing formations in the light of you know, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. It's not that you have to see each and every object in, you know, in all three modes. It's just whatever object arises, you'll see it in one mode and you're fully aware of this. You know this. Now, the next uh, point is that some meditators, having gone through the, or having developed their meditation practice through the different phases, uh, are still relating to formations as I or mine. And obviously, this is a no-no. And so, so, should this be your case, yeah, then uh, uh, let go of this notion of an I and uh, don't try you know, and the possessiveness and uh, simply as soon as you know, the notion of an I comes in or there's a sense of I and then immediately take this itself as an object, label it and let go of it. Now, discontinuity of mindfulness is a major factor that contributes to difficulties in the practice. And an on and off mindfulness or intermittent mindfulness simply doesn't yield certain good results. And actually, during this phase of one's practice, one's continuity of mindfulness should get or should improve even more than before, should be better than before. So one needs to work on it as much as possible. Now, then we also, we can come from the theoretical side and say, when experiencing this knowledge of equanimity about formations, the mind or the enlightenment factor should be present in the mind and as a result of this the mind should manifest in certain ways. Now the enlightenment factors you will surely remember as being of mindfulness of investigation of states and then energy joint rapture and so on and so forth. And so so when we then look at the manifestation of those mental factors, then they give us an idea of how the mind should be like, or or at least could be like. And so then we could assume 
that sort of the mind, there, you know, the, yeah, the observing mind is face-to-face with the object of observation and it will be you know, well protected and so, you know, that there's no confusion, which is the manifestation of, uh, uh, of uh, wisdom. You know, then the manifestation of effort, as uh, we discussed recently, you know, was non-collapse of the associated uh, mental states. Uh, then you know, the manifestation for joint rapture is that of elation, and uh, you know, the manifestation for tranquility is that of peacefulness and coolness, and uh, you know, the uh, um, manifestation for you know, concentration is uh, you know, that uh, comes as peace and stability, and uh, the manifestation you know, for equi- of equanimity that comes in the form of neutrality. And then we can also assume that faith will be there, so the mind then most likely will be clear and pure and so on. So these are just some of the mental qualities that could possibly arise in the mind. So then what you could do as a meditator, namely to, when you observe the mind, to check what is the mental composition like. And so which mental, mental states or mental factors are predominant? What am I dealing with here? And um, that then helps. And that would actually then come under citta nupasana satipatthana. Now, the yo-yo effect uh, was described already yesterday. And so uh, if that happens in your meditation practice and your practice goes up and down and up and down, and it's not, you know, well, you know, there's some, one is facing some difficulty you know, to you know, firmly establish this knowledge of equanimity, uh, then, um, then what one needs to do is just uh, to be, you know, when everyone's practice has dropped off, then one should recognize this as quickly as possible and with much patience and uh, determination and continued mindfulness observe whatever is predominant and then gradually build up one's practice uh, again. Now, another area that could lead to difficulties is that of the the five controlling faculties any imbalance of the two pairs of controlling faculties you know, may or, or definitely you know, will lead you know, to um, well uh, a hard time you know, to establish uh, equanimity. And, so, and then, not to be underestimated, is impurity as uh, uh, as a cause that may lead to difficulties you know, to establish you know, the knowledge of equanimity about formations. So uh, sometimes meditators so think, oh, well, you know, to, you know, to think you know, this slightly unwholesome thought, what is wrong with this? You know, nobody sees it. It's only, <laughs> it's only me who is aware of it, and so this won't make a difference. It will. And so, it's, uh, it may be just enough 
you know, to you know, cause uh, another you know, drop in one's uh, meditation practice. The mind is so sensitive at this point um, you know, that it easily picks up on the slightest amount of impurity. Then, another you know, difficulty that meditators occasionally you know, face and certainly express is that of the superficiality of their observation, of their mindfulness. So they think they're mindful of what's going on, but the mindfulness is kind of just on only on the surface, and this will not work either. And so, so therefore, should you find that this is your case, you know, then do something about it and you know, try to penetrate the object, go deeper, and try to see more and more you know, details. And so, then, yet another point. We may not have understood the importance of really being um, in the present moment from moment to moment. And so we might think, well, um, a little bit going into the future planning or remembering something from the past will not hurt. It will hurt. And so, so during this phase of the practice, everything... Uh, your mental factors need, need to you know, need to be wholesome. They need to be well developed. So, you know, they need to be close to perfect, and other and, and the same thing goes for other conditions. And the same thing you know, goes when it comes to you know, the aspect of time. We need to be taught perfectly tuned into the present moment, and so in a perfect certain way. And indeed, it does become possible. And then, um, a major you know, difficulty comes in the form of expectations. So, your you know, rising and falling assumes uh, you know, new qualities, and you get all excited about it, and the, the thought arises in the mind, oh, Nibbana is just around the door, or just around the corner, sorry. And... So, and so this much of a thought is already enough you know, to you know, lead to a major meltdown in your practice. <laughs> and so, so one shouldn't underestimate you know, these expectations, anticipations, desires, wishes, and you know, whatnot. At this point in the practice, uh, things are rather delicate and uh, an expectation is basically an, you know, a manifestation of an unwholesome, of the unwholesome mental state of, uh, you know, of greed or you know, desire. And some, you know, that then interferes uh, uh, with one's uh, meditation. Now, um, another common you know, problem, and certainly you will definitely not be exempted from you know, this, is time pressure. The retreat... Uh, is certainly coming to or drawing uh, or coming to, uh, to an end and, so, and then you know, thoughts certainly may come up in the mind oh well you know, it would be nice if I could you know, realize the Dhamma you know, before going back home uh, which is a, a noble you know, noble intention but um, you know, there's a little bit of uh, greed there a little bit of desire there and so, you know, this may be already you know, too much. 
then some meditators as certain of their as their meditation is developing through the different insight knowledges, the hind the five hindrances tend to reoccur, and so at this point, a meditator somewhere or other doesn't have the skill yet to overcome these hindrances, and so so then again and again. Falls back onto the hindrances. Maybe it manages to overcome one hindrance, but then another one comes up, and uh, at times maybe briefly experiences equanimity, but then you know, the practice uh, no, 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 collapses again. And uh, so, um, what one needs to do in this situation is simply you know, to observe these hindrances with an attitude of. Know, patience and acceptance, but also with a uh, uh, good, certain good effort and much uh, mindfulness and plenty of uh, detachment, and then gradually uh, they will uh, subside, and not to identify with any of those certain uh, hindrances. Sometimes meditators you know, f- have a hard time you know, fully establishing this. Uh, Knowledge of equanimity about formations because they're still attached you know, to thinking. And uh, again and again, they're going into thinking. This will not work either, especially you know, because during this phase in one's meditation, you know, there will be relatively little thinking. And even if some thinking arises, the mindfulness is so sharp and so quick that it can catch a thought while it is still forming, while before it has even fully formed. So it's kind of like, you know, a, you know, a mushroom, you know, a mushroom forming, come popping out of the earth or from out coming out of the soil with some you know piece of soil on top, and <laughs> and you can catch it right right there. And um, sometimes, you know, in Lumbini, we've had uh, not just Lumbini but also elsewhere. You know, there have been uh, meditators who've, you know, who experience this equanimity about formations um, for longer periods of time. They're working really hard. They're really sincere about the practice. They're doing just everything that could be done to, you know, to intensify the practice and to and to move on. And yet they're. You know, the practice is not moving on, and um, this may be owing to a certain dullness of the mind. You know? Dullness, you know, you know, a mind owing to um, or owing to some past conditions of the present life or some past existence. And I'll give you a few you know, examples certainly for this. If a person, for instance, has uh, taken a fair amount of drugs and uh, was fond of uh, drinking wine and other forms of alcohol, this has an an effect on the mind. And uh, it may contribute to an overall dullness of the mind, and it might show at this point in the practice. If this is the case, do not despair, but simply with much patience, 
um, you know, just keep going and keep doing your practice and gradually the mind does get sharper and sharp enough to you know, then break through. And so, um, then a difficulty arises in the context with uh, you know, joy, tranquility, peace of mind and so on. Pleasant, wholesome mental states. Now, um, a meditator may you know, well like these mental states a lot and you know, will then want to experience more and more of them. And so, you know, this then leads to a certain attachment, craving for, you know, for them. And so, you know, that then clearly interferes with uh, you know, the practice. Now, at, you know, during this knowledge of equanimity about formations, we want to have a neutral mind, and a mind that is detached from formations, that is neither uh, attracted by you know, desirable objects nor um, oh, uh, aversive towards uh, undesirable objects. Then, other difficulties you know, arise owing to the fact that, you know, that a meditator may think, oh, well, you know, over the retreat, when everything's gone boring, you know, I used to you know, read you know, this book, that book, and so um, you know, this, if I keep on reading during this phase of the practice, it will not hurt my, uh, you know, my meditation. It will. And so, you know, so and at this point in the practice, things are so refined that you know, even a small amount of reading, just five minutes or so, may be already enough, again, you know, to you know, somewhat agitate the mind. It may then lead to thinking, unnecessary thinking, and you know, this will interfere with your uh, equanimity. And reading, writing, other you know, distractions. So one should be as focused on one's meditation as possible and cut out any kind of uh, activity that is not directly related you know, to you know, meditation practice. Um, and, so, and basically just to do what a meditator you know, uh, is certainly supposed or is called to, you know, to do, namely to sit, to walk, to sit, to walk, to be mindful in all of these uh, activities. Now, maybe the last, oh, not quite the last, uh, maybe the second last point is, or third last point. <laughs> There's so many points here. Um, namely, a wrongful attitude towards the practice, trying to force it, trying to force the attainment of Nibbana. And by now, you will know that this is not going to work. The more you force, you can ask any meditator who is experiencing this phase of the meditation, forcing just doesn't work. Actually, it's counterproductive and it may harm your practice more than it might help it. Then, um, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita, when guiding meditators, sometimes he no, 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 well, explains by the way of the following no, illustration. Namely, when you have a piece of cloth 
that is torn and that needs to be mended. And then, and you do the mending job with an old rusty needle, then what will happen? It gets soiled, and what, what was that? It, uh, it doesn't slide. So instead of saying it doesn't slide, it will hitch. No? And uh, as a result of this, our you know, sew, you know, sewing job will take some time and it will be somewhat difficult. But if we happen to do the same you know, you know, sewing job or mending job with a brand new stainless steel you know, needle, you know, then... Uh, you know, then the work you know, will you know, go very nicely, and you know, we will not. Uh, there won't be any hitching. Same thing for the meditation practice. So, as meditators, with regard to the objects that are occurring in the body and in the mind, we may we have to make sure that the mind does not hitch and does not get caught up in any of those objects. Since we've seen them already a thou many thousand times, um, we, there's no need to look at an object more than uh, necessary. So if you see the nature of an object as being so-and-so-and-so, then let go of it and move on to the next object. Don't get caught up in that object. Don't, don't take a, a, a second or third or fourth look or even get attached to the object. That would amount to hitching, hitching in one's practice. But rather... Um, Whatever object arises, you briefly look at it, you observe it, you know its nature, and that's it, and then you move on to the next object. Or you stay with the same object, but without attaching or craving for the object. So that, at times, may be a major, the hitching may be a major difficulty. And and then usually, and this is no the second uh, no, the last point for tonight, is usually longer sittings are helpful. So longer sittings of two to three hours, and you know, the reason for this is, oftentimes it takes as much as one hour you know, to go you know, to get past. You know, all the phenomena from you know, the knowledge of reobservation, the preceding insight knowledge, and so, so to get past the hindrances and you know, all sorts of jerks and jolts and this and that. And, so, and then if you were to sit just for one hour, by the time that you know, you know, or when the hour is up, you, know, you, you have barely uh, or there's no more opportunity you know, to you know, go any further. And so just the, the, the shortness of a sitting may actually limit your, you know, you know, the development in your meditation practice. So just know this and give yourself and your meditation practice uh, a chance you know, to unfold further by sitting longer. And you know, when you sit for something like an hour and a half or two hours or even three hours, well, you can imagine in three hours much more development is possible than in just one single hour. No? Now, however, you know, quality in, in, or in, in this certain regard, quality counts and not only qu you know, quantity. Uh, 
if you feel you're beyond the peak of your sitting and your practice is kind of dropping off, losing momentum, and there's no way that you can get it back, then simply call it quits, open your eyes, get up, do some walking meditation, and you know, try again you know, sometimes, you know, sometime later. However, uh, when things are moving and um, you have you know, the impression that you know, your, your practice is strong and could certainly develop further, and uh, already you're in the third hour and you could go even beyond this, go for it. You know? And so make good use of this uh, addition or of you know, this particular momentum. Now, um, well, to keep promises, <laughs> the last point for tonight is, <laughs> is, and this uh, is yet another important point, keep the body as still as possible. And mm, earlier on, uh, owing to you know, the presence of, in particular, the you know, hindrances to you know, progress, the mind was very unstable, and this then, of course, you know, manifests you know, physically you know, through all sorts of you know, bodily movements, you know, swaying movements, jumps and jolts, and so on and so forth. Now, the stillness, or yeah, the stillness of the body, is a prerequisite for the arising of stillness of the mind. So. With a, it is very difficult to work with a mind when the body is agitated and moving here, moving there. And as some of you may have noticed already from your own meditation practice, um, usually when there is a movement of the body, some swaying movement or so, this will create some motion or some movement in the mind itself. And so this then may interfere with your observation of what's uh, happening. So ideally, you, know, you want your, your body to be as still as possible, and so you also want your mind to be as still or tranquil as possible. And this then you know, um, represents a good uh, condition for proper observation. Now, let me conclude. You know, tonight's Satna Dhamma talk, and we're past our usual time, um, by you know, wishing, may, may the practice of Satipatthana, and in particular the development of mindfulness, may this be the initiating or the, you know, the you know, triggering force for a development you know, that you know, then unfolds over time more and more, a development in terms of wisdom, and so may it eventually lead you, you know, to a point in your meditation practice where you transcend pairs of opposites you know, such as uh, you know, you know, fright and uh, delight and the like, and so may you you know, thus gain a mind that is strong, that has you know, a repelling power, resistance power, and that is well prepared for what then 
happens next, namely you know, the crossing over to the state of peace. And may this happen you know, during this retreat or maybe some other retreat. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.